friends, Romans, countrymen, lend me your ears. What's up, y'all? It's the MC Lars podcast made possible by this incredible future we live in. It is Monday, November 12th, 2018. I am currently on tour with I Fight Dragons. We play Boston tomorrow, then Teaneck, New Jersey, then Brooklyn, then Philly, then Baltimore, then I rock DC by myself. And then that's it for a bit. I play a show in LA, a Christmas show with Living Legends and a bunch of other old school rap, indie, hip hop legends. But that's pretty much it for the year. It's been a lot of touring this year. Less than I have in the past, but uh, thanks to anyone who's come out to see us. And I wanted to, as always, shout out the Patreon supporters. Shout out to Donald and Chris and also to Paul. These are the new Patreon supporters. Shout out to some of the old supporters. Andrew, Brian, and Angie Rush. Y'all have been very sweet and kind. We're doing the Chronicles of Narnia. And you know, The Last Battle, I just finished that book in preparation. That book is... That is a crazy twist. I can't tell you the twist, but my God, C.S. Lewis had it going on. Speaking of literature, I wanted to read you a poem. And this is William Shakespeare's Sonnet 18, which kind of reminds me of the medium of podcasting. And I'll explain why. I'll explain why. Let me read the poem. You definitely will recognize this. This is his most famous sonnet, probably. Shall I compare thee to a summer's day? Thou art more lovely and more temperate. Rough winds do shake the darling buds of May. In summer's lease have all too short a date. Sometime too hot the high of heaven shines, and often is his gold complexion dimmed. And every fair from fair sometime declines, by chance of nature's changing course untrimmed. But thy eternal summer shall not fade, nor lose possession of that fair thou owest. Nor shall death brag thou wanderest in his shade, when in eternal lines to time thou growest. So long as men can breathe, their eyes can see. So long lives this, and this gives life to thee. Okay, what's he talking about in the final couplet? So long as men can breathe, their eyes can see. So long lives this, and this gives life to thee. His series of sonnets kind of act as like an animated flip book that kind of bring to life his love, right? And so he's saying, as long as these poems exist, you'll be alive. You won't die. And I read that poem because it reminds me kind of of the medium of podcasting. Every Monday, I give you a little snapshot of my life. Like if I'm on tour... If I'm back home, if I'm doing this, I'm doing that. And I think that podcasting is a very intimate, interesting medium where going back to the Marshall McLuhan stuff I was talking about with Brennan, with Wheatus, the medium is the message, right? And so storytelling is kind of inherent in the form. And this is a great transition for this week's guest. Eamon Dolan, he is an editor at Simon & Schuster. Uh, I met him years ago when he was working at Houghton Mifflin through a friend and I had some book ideas and you know I had a few meetings with him and talked about it and it was kind of cool hearing his take. I ended up really like liking the guy and respecting him not just because I thought like he had a super interesting perspective but also I liked how his approach to storytelling really connected with how I write songs and how I try to frame my work. And we definitely dive into this at length. You know, we talk about how really the craft of editing is a lot of removal, right? Like there's so much chaos in this world that good art and good storytelling, especially nonfiction, can come from subtraction. So we see just the basic things that create a narrative that give meaning and help reinforce certain points. And Eamon talks about how his editing fiction kind of helped him learn about what it was like to craft narrative. So this was like definitely one of my favorite interviews I've done. And it was really cool of Eamon to come out all the way to our apartment and hang out with me and talk at length. And, you know, I learned about his background and I learned about his life and his path. And he's definitely an interesting guy. The other thing I love about Eamon is he's a great photographer. So we talk a lot about how his photos kind of tell a story and it's all about framing. It's a similar skill set to editing his books. It's about framing the context. So content creators, writers, Anyone who's like into literature, you'll find this super interesting. And I hope it gives you some inspiration. At the end, I say, yo, just one more thing. Oh, and one more thing. Like, I can't stop asking him questions. So that's why I say I got one more question, but it's not the last question towards the end. So this is my interview with Eamon Dolan, editor, photographer extraordinaire. Thank you all for listening to the MC Lars podcast. <laughs> Welcome to a very, very special episode of the MC Lars podcast. I like to bring people from different fields and different backgrounds and different stories. And uh, this 
week, we have a very special editor, a very special guest, someone I've known a very long time, about seven years, Eamon Dolan. Let's get it up for Eamon Dolan. Woo! Woohoo! Eamon, you biked all the way, or you you took, you braved the G train to come all the way here. Thank you for being on the show. Uh, thank, you're very welcome. Thanks for having me. There's so much to talk about. And I wanted I want to talk about like one of the things we we talked about before the interview is how the publishing industry and the music industry have some similarities. But first I wanted to just mention some of the some of the books that you've worked on that are uh that are many of the listeners will know. These include uh The God Delusion by Richard Dawkins. Woo-hoo. Uh, let's see. I'll hold my woohoo's till the end. <laughs> the, uh, should I, I just wanted this list is so impressive. Three nights. I'm just gonna say the titles. Three nights in August. Johnny Carson, The God Delusion, Moonwalking with Einstein, The Idea Factory, How Doctors Think, Fast Food Nation, Lincoln's Melancholy, Beautiful Boy, Ghost Fleet, and Fosse. Woohoo! For all of them, <laughs> and and more. And you've been. You're with a new a new imprint. Can we talk about that? Sure. Uh, I've just started at um, a wonderful place called Simon and Schuster um, as a VP and executive editor. Um, by the time this goes up, I will have been there a week or two or three, and I can't wait. And nonfiction is your expertise, you would say, right? Yeah, I have. I published a lot of fiction in my time, and my experience as a fiction editor, which is how I got my start pretty much, um, very much informs how I edit now. My concerns about narrative, about structure, um, uh, which I'm uh, obsessed with, Hmm. um, and I think are often the difference between uh, sort of a B-minus, C-plus book and an A or an A-plus book. Um, Those, um, you know, cutting my teeth on fiction really helped me develop those skills and helped me um, serve my authors by um, bringing out those elements in their work. And so along that line, like it seems like in both music and publishing, there's this contract between the audience and the creator or the curator that if you give me your time, I will reward this with making your life better. And you'll be thankful you gave me an album, 45 minutes or, or, or a week to read a book. Right. And that's like a, it's a very special sacred, like agreement, you know, Mm -hmm. I definitely consider it the same way you do. Um, and I think that books in particular, th- there are several criteria that I use when I'm thinking about whether I want to publish a project, you know, b- b- develop, help an author develop an idea or take what we call a proposal, which is uh, sort of a, a, a uh, a pricey or like a grant proposal, you know, that the, uh, usually the author needs you to underwrite their, their work on the book. So mm-hmm. they can't write the whole thing in fiction. It's different. Usually, especially first time authors in fiction usually have to write all or most of the book in order to get people to, um, to, to see whether they have the chops. Yeah. Um, but in nonfiction editing, the editor, um, often has a more, um, intrusive, uh, hopefully helpful, uh, role to play. I, I don't need to eat the whole egg to know it's rotten or, or delicious. Um, so I, again, I can read a proposal and I can sort of say, oh, you know, this is what I want, uh, and need. Um, I, I, in that context, the, the, one of the things I'm always thinking about is, is, is this, is this going to be worth $25 to somebody? Let's say that's mm. the average price for a hardcover book. It's yeah. less for ebooks, it's you know, less for paperbacks, but that's a good um, benchmark to use. Um, and um, also, especially in this day and age, but in every day, all ages, um, you know, every book is competing against every other book for everyone's attention and against every other medium for someone's attention. Time is the only thing that's finite. The media are infinite these days or functionally mm. infinite. Um, so I, I always think to myself, what can a book give readers that no other medium can? Um, and I think that I, I don't have any evidence to back this up aside from strong anecdotal evidence, my own experience as a reader and as an editor. Um, I think books have an unrivaled uh, capacity to change people's minds. Yeah. Um, and I think it has to do with, uh, um, uh, with, uh, a couple of things. For one, you spend more time with a book than you do with any other work of art. A, a film is, say, two hours long. A, an album is, like you say, about 45 minutes long. Um, and uh, even if you're binging a series, you know, on, on, on Netflix or something, that's, that's 
you know, 10 hours that you spend and it can be an incredibly immersive 10 hours, but then you're, you're done and you move on. Yeah. Um, I think for various sort of psychological and neurological reasons, the time that you spend with a book is deep time. And it really gets in there if, if the author and the editor do their jobs right. It really gets in there and ties your neurons up in, in different patterns. And mm. I really want to feel, no matter what kind of book I'm doing, that a reader will come away thinking differently and, and, and feeling differently. Um, because the books want to have an emotional impact as well than they did when they started. Similarly, um, or I, I guess I'd say the other most important criterion for me, and it's one that I'm probably as much responsible for in many cases as the author, is um, how the thing flows. And flow is a function of structure and transition. The best thing that a reader can say about any book, fiction or nonfiction, is I couldn't put it down. And when a reader says that, it's because the book is knit together so seamlessly that there's no moment when their mind wandered, that there's no gap in the author's um, presentation of the text. There's no distraction. The author doesn't go off on tangents that feel like tangents. Everything flows smoothly. And that's how you get that unputdownable quality. That is very much a function of whether the author has, or I can help the author have, this capacity to knit things together um, as flawlessly, as seamlessly as they need to be knit together. The third thing I'd say is argument. I think every, this goes back to the mind-changing thing to a certain degree, but I think every book has to have an argument. And I think uh, there are a couple of reasons for that. One, argument is narrative. Um, we live in a chaotic, non-linear world, but um, one of the great um, and most useful conceits of any book is that it presents um, in more or less linear form um, a pared down version in, of the world in which you can see the truths of the world more clearly than if you were just looking at the great miasma of life before you. Um, argument really helps um, to convey that. It helps the author focus. It helps the author and me figure out uh, what's extraneous because it doesn't serve the argument. Mm. And again, argument is narrative. So it's just another way to help create that flow that I think is so crucial. So in a lot of ways, you're successful when it's not obvious that you are trying to um, inspire that, that sort of narrative, right? That, that, the, that the story is kind of speaking for itself, that you're not forcing an argument. Yes, th I think that's exactly true. Yeah. Um, and that I'm not forcing myself into the work. Yeah. Um, my work wants to be invisible. You know this, I'm sure, from your own work, that um, part of the artifice of art is the illusion of ease. It goes into your eyeballs mm. or your ear holes so readily that it just feels natural yeah. to you. But if you're the artist, if you're the creator, um, you, you bust your ass to create that illusion of ease. You know, one of the things that I tell all my authors, and is probably, I'm the photographer as well, and I know this from, from, from shooting and editing my own work is the easier it is to read or, or see or hear. Um, but let's stick with reading because that's what we're, we're talking about books here. The easier it is to read, the harder it was to write. That's almost invariably the case. Like with songwriting, when I do a record, I'll do 20 songs mm -hmm. and put out 11. Mm -hmm. And so it's about, you try to, I guess, probably lovingly with your authors be like, you know, these are the better chapters and you're still, you're like a, probably like a therapist, like you, you're great, but, but this is what's strong. And so you, so not only are you building this relationship with the readers, it's very intimate, a relationship with you and an, and an author, because he or she may have spent a year on something and you get to tell them, <laughs> right? Like, honestly, what, like what you feel about it, which, but they love working with you because you have a track record and you're honest. Um, yeah, you're exactly right about that. The, the, in publishing we talk about, and, and, and in uh, like MFA courses, um, you know, where writers go to some, many writers go to hone their craft. Um, they talk about killing your darlings. Yeah. And oftentimes the thing that the, you know, that is most beloved of the author is least intelligible, um, to the reader. Not always, but often the more closely, intimately connected you as an author feel to a particular passage, uh, a particular episode, a particular character, um, the less likely it is to, to reach the reader. One of the great um, ironies of uh, my line of work is that an author's expertise can 
distance them from the subject and distance them especially from the reader because mm. they don't know what we don't know. They have internalized so thoroughly the subject that they're writing about that for them, it's an effortless move from you know one point to the next point to the next point to the next. But we don't necessarily understand how they made that sort of lightning fast move from point A to point Z. Right. Oftentimes, I tell authors to err on the side of the obvious. Like pretend I'm stupider than I am and just over-explain everything to me, and then you'll probably get it close to right. Um, so that's, so the, the word I write most frequently in the marginal notes of, of the books I edit, more frequently than and or the, is vague. Okay. Um, the second most <laughs> frequent word I use is cut. Um, uh-huh. And that goes back to the killing your darlings um, uh, notion. And I would say... There's no, sometimes I don't have to cut that much. Sometimes, sometimes I have to cut a lot, but it's not unusual for me to, to suggest to an author cutting a third out of the first complete draft that they send to me. And that's not because they're, you know, they're not good at their jobs. It's because you kind of have to aim high to hit the mark. You have to record 20 songs to get 12 that work. And I think that's true. I have I have to shoot a lot more, uh, you know, photos than I end up printing. Um, and part of that is you want to find the lucky moment. And part of that is you want to hit your groove. And as we could, you know, go on and on about all of the factors that make that kind of overage necessary. Part of my job with authors, even, even authors I've worked with for a long time, because they never fail to be um, close to their material. They, sh- they, they, they shouldn't. But part of the job... Um, sometimes say that um, editing is like practicing psychology without a license. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You have to help them work through their issues and um, in some cases help them understand why they're so attached to something that someone else might be less attached to. You know, for me, it's not about manipulation. Um, uh, You know, I, I, I don't hoodwink my authors. I don't, you know, try to cut chapter 13 when they're not looking. Um, right. What I try to do is explain from a reader's perspective why this or that might not work. And my notes, I edit and track changes, so the, the notes in the bubbles are very often striving to give that explanation of why a reader might miss something that you're trying to convey. Do you spend much time on Reddit? Do you use that site? Not that much. I mean, occasionally, but, you know, am I a daily, you know, AMA consumer or anything like that? <laughs> nah. They have a, they have a, sometimes a uh, post, it's called LE5, explain like I'm five, E-L-I-5. <laughs> and that's what made me think of that. Like LE5, how does electricity work? The top rated post will be a, what you said, something that someone who knows nothing about will have to like help them explain, you know? Electrons and protons don't <laughs> like each other. <laughs> they run in the opposite directions when they see each other. Um, you yeah, can be on LA, there, yeah. Oh, thanks. Uh, well, it's good to know that I have other career options. Um, I, I love the idea of LE5. That is, that is what I'm, I, I guess for, maybe I'd say LE8, but essentially it's the, it's, it, it's the same idea. What I like about that is that there's not a talking down in that, right? In that it's because you're passionate about something, it's music and books and everything, it's communication. And so if you're passionate about it and have the time and energy, that's like where the real craft is, I guess. Yeah, I think yeah. that's. I think that. I think you're right. That's true for for any art. There's a productive tension between the satisfaction that the artist gets and the self actualization and self awareness that the artist gets, and what the the uh, reader or viewer or listener needs. Um, and that you know, I'm always in that DMZ as an editor. You know, <laughs> um, yeah. T- t- you know, t- trying to negotiate. Not even not a, not a, a you know a truce. I, it's usually it's a very happy. Um, you know, peace between those those two somewhat opposed um, forces, both of which are essential to make good art. And also there's the commodity of attention, which I think going back to what you said with the book is mm. you can't get a text on a book. You can't get a, a, a tweet on a book. It's it's such a beautiful way that now more than ever, we you can have a sacred moment. With yeah, someone else's mind. I think that's I think that's exactly right, and that that you articulate very well what I was trying to get across before when I mentioned the notion of the depth of the relationship that a reader can have with a mm. book. If the author and the editor do a good job of setting the hook, bringing you know drawing the reader in and holding the reader for a while, um, then everything else slips away, and 
um, the medium is as well suited as any for that. And I would argue probably better suited than, than any other for that kind of, relatively speaking, long-term and, and very intimate relationship. So, Eamon, I wanted to learn more about your background and like how you got to this interesting place in your life, because I don't know, I really don't know many editors and I don't, and I, and I, and we have the similar passion for music and literature, but your, your path is really interesting to me. So you grew up in the Bronx, is that right? Uh Yeah. And, um, where did you go to school? So I went, um, to public school for my first six or seven years. Um, then I went to, um, there's a, program in New York. I'm not sure if it's, um, they have it elsewhere in the country, but it's, it's called prep for prep and it's sort of bringing, um, working class and middle-class kids, um, sort of underwriting their, their, uh, opportunity to go to great private schools. The program I, uh, was in was not prep for prep, but it was similar for those who know what prep for prep is. It was actually, oh my God, I should totally shout out to her. Um, it's actually underwritten by Lila Atchison Wallace, who's one of the founders of Reader's Digest. So without Reader's oh, wow. Digest, I wouldn't be here today. My neighborhood where I grew up is 100% off the boat Irish in those days. It's now changed um, as, as neighborhoods in New York so often do. But in those days, it was all first-generation Irish. And most of the kids went to Catholic school. And a few of us got into one of these. The school I went to was called Riverdale Country School um, from 7th through 12th grade. And um, it, was a, it was a formative experience for me. After that, I went to Yale. After that, I, I was an English major. Um, I remember when I told my mother I had chosen English major, she said, oh, what are you going to do with that? Open an English store? And I'm like, whatever, 25 <laughs> years later, I'm like, lady, that's exactly what I did. <laughs> that's awesome. Um, so uh, it was after that, uh, it was at that point, I was thinking of law school, you know, whatever the um, the place for some moderately smart person who doesn't know what they want to do would would take themselves, and then I realized that I was uh, I was a good writer, but that I had no original ideas of my own or s- original ideas that were sustainable <laughs> over more than say four hundred and thirty seven words. Um, so I thought maybe I could be an editor, and that's um, uh, uncharacteristic of me and sort of the um, the sheer logic of it, and yet it was exactly the right thing. Um, mm. <laughs> I. Um, as I said before, I started, I, I, uh, got a job, um, at what was then called Harper and Row. It soon became Harper Collins. Um, um, and pr- publishing is an apprenticeship, especially in the editorial side. Publishing is, an, is, and I think will always have to be an apprenticeship profession. So you, you learn the ropes by starting out as someone's assistant, um, just like you would be an apprentice or a journeyman, you know, at the blacksmith shop, uh, you know, back in the day. Yeah. Um, so you, you know, you, I learned over the course of a few years, um, the ropes and the relationships publishing, um, is an incredibly social business. So a, a big part of learning how to do it is learning who to do it with and befriending them and you learning what their proclivities and hopes and fears are and them learning the same about you and learning to trust you as well. Mm. Um, and it's very, as I say, very much a social business, very much a business based on mutual trust. So it takes a, you know some time to establish that as well. And then gradually I moved up the ranks, moved through three or four places, and now it's today. So you were just like, I'm going to be an editor you're like, I'm going to do it. And you just put in the work and you made it happen. Yeah. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. it's. I mean, everything in my life is so, you know, it, uh, incredibly roundabout and, and ass ways. And yet, yeah, I did that kind of directly and, and it really worked for me. And one of the things I love about following you on social media is I'm always commenting on your Instagram and your, uh, yeah, thank you. your Twitter. I love your photography. Thank you always, you. you capture such a real part of New York, the colors, like people on the subway, like in great moments. And you always have like funny captions. <laughs> and, um, and I just love like when I'm out of the city, when I look at your social media and I see a post, I'm like, oh yeah, that's why I love New York. That's oh. why I miss New York. How did you, first of all, get into photography? How long were you doing that? And how do you balance the two like careers? Uh, I've always loved photography um, from when I was uh, probably in my teens and I first discovered the, you know, the great um, photographers of the early and mid 20th century, um, uh, uh, Eisenstadt and, and Dorothy Lang and, and Walker Evans and, uh, Deanne Arbus and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And 
I loved what they were able to do, how real it felt, but also how perspective, POV, point of view mattered so much. And I know that's true in any art, but I saw it in those days most clearly in photography. And I tried to be a photographer myself, um, but man, it's effing hard working with an SLR. You got to get the f-stop right and you got to get, and it's, it's so, I tried and I failed essentially. And then along came, decades later, along came the iPhone. Mm. That allowed me to put all the futzing that I used to have to do at the front end. It allowed me to move most of that, essentially everything but the composition. It allowed me to move it to the back end. Now I shoot with an iPhone 6S and I edit with a free app called Snapseed, um, which has really gotten very good in the last couple of years. And part of it for me is being able to do the most with what everyone has in their pocket. That's a challenge that I set for myself. In terms of why I shoot what I shoot and what it means to me, as you say, I shoot a lot in the subway. Um, There's a tradition of street photography, um, which is just candid sort of portraiture of people in the street. And I've just, you know, as many greater, far greater photographers than I have done before, I've just moved it underground. (laughs) Um, I spend a lot of time in the subway. And I realized three or four years ago now that the iPhone, although it has many limitations, which had until that time kind of limited me to shooting cityscapes, you know, stuff where you essentially had an infinite focal range. And so you didn't really have to think about, because you didn't have the option of focusing or unfocusing or creating depth of field or anything like that. But I realized that the kind of distances that you get in the subway and the kind of lighting that you get in the subway are actually pretty conducive. I also realized at that time, like I've been shooting for a couple of years now and there's never any people in my photos. Like what kind of weirdo am I? And I better put some people in there. (laughs) And I realized that the subway was the place to do it. And almost immediately once I had that realization, I just started to see people who I really admired and who I think I would not have looked so closely at otherwise. There's something about their, it could be anything. If it's a couple, how easy their relationship is, how loving their relationship is. There's something, there's this great irony of public privacy in any large city. I think it's especially true in New York and maybe even more so on the subway. Yeah. Um, and we all enter into this consensual illusion that we're going to just sort of rest our gaze kind of over the other person's shoulder. We're going to let them pretend that we're not there and they're going to do the same for us. Yeah, yeah. And I know that I'm violating that when I shoot people because I don't ask their permission. I don't have to. Legally, I don't have to because it's a public place. And I'm not so much concerned with whether they would like the picture if I did show it to them. Mm. Um, I'm more concerned about what other people might think of them what other people admire them, what other people find them amusing, what other people find them comforting, what other people sympathize with their plight. If I can convey that, then I think I've done right. It's presumptuous of me to say I know, but I'll still say it. I think I've done right by them. So as I say, mostly I shoot cityscapes now and these subway photos that we were talking about. And I've lived in the city all my life, except for college. And I, I love it. It's a friend to me. Mm. It's the friendship that it gives me is in this sort of kaleidoscopic thing. It, you know, it just pours in every day in different ways. You know, perhaps it's about set and setting and the fact that I'm sort of, you know, I'm an optimist by nature and I'm, you know, so I'm maybe looking for the upside, but I see upside everywhere. Especially since I've started shooting seriously, I've found it more often because I'm looking for it. It's it's not that it wasn't there all the time, but shooting it reminds me so forcefully on a daily basis that it's there and whether it's the sort of natural beauty of the city. And by that, I mean, the city, we tend to think of cities as unnatural places, but in fact, it's no more unnatural than a beehive, you know, or any other construct that any other bird's nest, than any other, those cool termite mounds in Africa that are like eight feet tall. You right, know? right, right. Um, why is a city any different than that? The landscape, the nature that is the city is something that really draws me and has comforted me for you know 50 years now. And then the people within it who so much more often than not rise above the indignities that the city thrusts upon them or just yeah. the difficulty of their life. Those private moments, which you mentioned, like that is what's special to me about New York in that Los Angeles, I've lived in LA, you know, I lived in the Bay Area and we are so, you know, it's it's the stereotype of being in your car. You don't have those moments that you talk about, those private moments where you're all looking at, like not making eye contact. And if there is someone who's being a little aggressive with personal space, Mm -hmm. people all Mm -hmm. like 
they're, we're like clams. We kind of like close up yeah. a little bit because we know, okay, this guy is 5%, or this woman is 5% off, mm-hmm. off, like not used to being on the subway like this. I could go on at length about how Governor Cuomo has abused the subway during his term in office. And it's not as, you know, it's not as dependable as it used to be, et cetera, et cetera. But I'll write that op-ed later. For now, (laughs) I'll just say that it amazes me pretty much every time. I'd say 96% of the time I'm on the subway, people are in, in one way or another at their best. Yeah, definitely. And what I like about your pictures, just one last thing I want to say is by all means, you'll have um, somewhere it's like a couple, the woman is like really, really short and the guy's like eight (laughs) feet tall and you'll call it like Darwin's revenge or something like something. I made that up or like something like the surprise of love. Do you come up with your titles while you take it or do you look later and think about it? Cause that always, it's always that combination that tickles me. Oh, that's, um, thank you for saying that. (laughs) Um, to be honest, I'm, I've never thought that, um, uh, I've never articulated it to myself as clearly as you just did. <laughs> I think, um, in general, I shoot first and write captions later. Okay. Um, but oftentimes I love juxtapositions as you were suggesting there. Yeah. And yeah. it's either a juxtaposition between the signage, the ad and the person sitting <laughs> under the ad. Right. That's a favorite trope of mine. Yeah. Or it's couples, either romantic couples or parents with children or just two obviously strangers who happen to be thrust together by the, you know, exigencies of rush hour. Right, right. And there's something they share, um, that they don't even realize, or they are so unlike each other in a way they don't even realize. You know, one of my right. dreams, and I have yet to live this dream. Well, I'll, I'll say what my dream is first. Um, I really want to find a Hasidic man in full regalia sitting next to a woman in a burqa. Um, <laughs> that hasn't happened yet. Um, I know they're out there, there somewhere. Yeah, right now, that moment is exactly, happening. Exactly. <laughs> I'm missing it. Um, so, in some respects, I know what I want, but I, yeah. you know, I won't orchestrate it. I just, there was, um, um, one of my favorite photos of, of, of this sort um, that I've shot, there used to be an ad campaign for Chiquita Bananas. Okay. And there was a dancing lady standing on there or a big banana. The banana is sort of set in the middle of the, of, of the ad like a big smile. And then there's two stickers, which are these Chiquita stickers that are on the bananas in general that create the eyes. And it just says, oh, uh, on top it says, just smile. And there's this wonderful woman sitting underneath. Who's, she's wearing aviator sunglasses in the subway and she's got this frown on her face. <laughs> and I ri- ride the F train to work usually. And I had that exact ad. I knew exactly which car it was in. I knew which door it was by. I was casing that for weeks, waiting for the right person to sit down. And when she did, I wanted to hug her, except she had such a fearsome expression that I just took my one shot. <laughs> and then I faded back into the uh, in, in, into the crowd. One shot like Hamilton. Yeah. <laughs> I did not throw away that shot. I think the metaphor is obvious, but it's it's editing is yeah. is the perspective and not trying to change the truth and affect what's happening, but you're curating and cropping the this beautiful truth and that in a way is your brand and in a lot of ways you're it's so cool that your passion and perspective you've turned that into your your work and your life. And that that it's to me it's seamless, you know. Well, thanks. Yeah. I, I I appreciate that. I I I t- to my own um, pleasant surprise. I, I've, I've found that to be the case as well. And now I kind of rely on how, you know, my day job and my side gig kind of riff off and reinforce each other. In both cases, I find myself thinking about the importance of subtraction and how the truth comes out of subtraction, cutting away the underbrush, letting the, you know, letting the patterns emerge that we might not ordinarily see. Mm. And they can be in a work of nonfiction. They can be Patterns that uh, that aren't obvious, but that once they're pointed out to you, make you go, "Oh yeah, I see how those how those things go together. That's cool, or that really changes my mind." Or they can be sort of emotional patterns. How when you focus in on a, on a person or a, a couple of people in a space like the subway or the street, their dignity is coming through in a way that you might not notice if you hadn't cropped them in a certain way, mm. if you hadn't waited for a certain kind of, you know, for them to arrange themselves in a way that suggested, you know, the pieta or something like that. You're making choices, but you're not altering the facts. You're just making choices about which facts you show so that you show those facts more clearly than they might come out otherwise. You said something, and along those lines, that made me think of a connection. You talked about how a city is just as natural as a beehive, Mm. right? And I remember when I read the Aeneid, 
how there's a lot of symbolism about how Rome is created like a beehive, right? And the uh, the soldiers right. and everything. And that made me think- Damn, that's right. <laughs> and I remember that being a, that striking me like literature is timeless and the stories we talk about are connected to these broader mm. things that are bigger than humans, bigger than us. And mm. and I had this moment in high school, I was like, that's why this stuff is valuable. Yeah. People might laugh at us for being English majors, <laughs> but we can look at the news and realize that the madness of a a tyrant is finite or mm. that- Twas ever thus. Exactly. And that's what I love about storytelling. And that's what I think literature is so valuable. And I think that's yep. something that- as time goes on, I it's part part of my life mission to remind people that you know what I mean, like good man. That Aeneas story relates to your point about New York, and that is like a truth that even transcends humanity. Yeah, it certainly transcends the present moment. I one of the things that I, I am a big rereader <laughs> by necessity. I'm a big reader, but I always try to have at least one kind of classic that I rushed through in high school or college or in my twenties that's on my Kindle at the same time, and that I can just refer back to. I just finished Heart of Darkness as an example. Um, which I think the last time I read was high school. And I think I was it was assigned to us then um, primarily because it was short, uh, <laughs> I suspect. I mean, think of all the stuff you read in high school that it's a separate piece. Uh, I'm probably right. maybe dating myself. Or it's uh, Heart of Darkness or it's Ethan Frome. Yeah. You know, everyone reads Ethan Frome in high school and hates the shit out of it. <laughs> and Edith Wharton, I have to say, who wrote Ethan Frome, my favorite fiction writer, hands wow. down. Wow. But it took coming back to her. But the thing that amazes me is... How much like us those people are. One of the things that I think is so cool about literature and fiction in particular, especially the classics that we're talking about, is I think they were the original psychology. They were the original efforts to get inside other people's heads, to understand motivations, to understand the tensions, the conflicts that we all operate within, you know, our obligations versus our desires, our hopes versus our fears. Man, you know, fiction, and, uh, you know, I'll, I'll cast that broadly, you know, uh, quasi-fictional epics that may have some basis, in fact, oh, let's say the Old Testament, for example, um, <laughs> which I would definitely count as literature, you know, the mythic base of, one of the mythic bases of our civilization, or the Iliad and the Odyssey, all these. I mean, man, it's kind of amazing how fresh those people seem and how complicated and how tormented and how there's some of the same, I have recognized those torments. Yeah. And, and how for better or worse, the tragedy will always experience tragedy. will always experience the power shifting. will always experience like when I do my talks to kids, I talk about Shakespeare's, the flaws in his heroes and how like the celebrities we admire are flawed in a similar way. And yeah. That's comforting because it's like, well, it validates our passions and it, it reminds us that we're not wasting our time studying this stuff. I, I'm you glad know? you came back to that because yeah. I'm, I'll write this op-ed later too. I'll only just say a sentence or two about it now. But it is fashionable in certain realms, you know, local municipal governments, to, you know, at the state level um, and even at the federal level now to undermine the humanities in favor of stuff that's more monetizable, you know, STEM um, subjects, for example, sciences, math, engineering, that kind of stuff. And that, I think that's incredibly short-sighted. And I say that not just as someone who opened an English store um, <laughs> and is making a decent living out of said store. I think that fiction and, you know, let's throw the doors wide open. I mean, that's not just fiction that's printed or that comes, you know, comes in words, but any sort of stories. I'm a huge fan of story songs. And I think they have some of that same, in fact, there's something even, you know, there's a special power in story songs because they're portable. You don't need to be, you know, Homer himself to remember six or seven verses and know the story <laughs> of how someone, you know, how some love went awry or something like that. And then you can sort of ponder that at your leisure. But I think that they are ways for us to understand ourselves and other people that nothing else in the culture provides that you know nothing beats our friends in terms of coming to some of that necessary wisdom but even your friends can't show you everything and mm. and the book you read never judges you that wow what a great quote <laughs> yeah that the book you read isn't tracking what other brands you're affiliated <laughs> with <laughs> to, to help recommend the next book it's so true <laughs> i mean it's kind of it's kind of what now we're this is you know fine by me if, if you want to veer because i think this is a, a great moment to step into um, that question of, of, that you, I think, raised at the outset about how, how books resemble and how they differ 
um, from from other media. Yeah, the, the fact that it's still relatively difficult, um, even in electronic form, to intrude upon the linear continuity of the reading experience. And even you know, even when you're reading, you know, a wonderful article online, you know, every couple of sentences something is you know highlighted in blue, and you're like, oh, should I click on that? Or and not? there's an ad. Yeah, yeah. Or even if it's a great you know other article that you want to read. Yeah, right. Yeah. Um, but that you know that sort of back and forth, it's very effortful to uh, regain attention. If you let someone retain their attention, then they can just flow deeper and deeper into uh, into a work. But if they're jumping back and forth, so books mm. for a variety of reasons have escaped that. And I think you know there was a period in the '90s, in, in particular, when it was widely thought that books should, once eBooks became more prominent, become more linkable in that way. And clearly, the marketplace has chosen against that. So you were saying earlier, Eamon, that eBooks have kind of maybe plateaued. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We could talk about that for a second. Sure. Yeah. First of all, I'll um, say that I love eBooks. Uh, uh-huh. Most of the reading I do for work is on a Kindle. Most of the stuff I read for pleasure also is on a Kindle. It's portable, no product placement. You can use a Nook. Does anyone have Nooks anymore? Um, <laughs> I've seen them. Yeah. You can, you know, read on your phone, whatever. His phone's too you know, small for me, but um, I am not dissing the medium at all. I love that medium, but it's pretty clear now um, after, again, 15 years or so, I might be a little bit off in that estimation, but ebooks became a thing early in this century. And it was long suspected and feared that they would put print books, you know, uh, out of business. Mm. And indeed, that hasn't happened. They found their level. There are certain demographics, there are certain audiences, there are certain kinds of books that seem to uh, do better in electronic form than otherwise. But generally speaking, Ebooks have, as I say, found their level. And I'm going to get the number wrong, so I don't want to quote a number, but it's some, you know, it's some minority of all copies sold. And it's been that way for years now. There are interesting trends among independent bookstores. That is to say, there, you know, there are more of them now than there were a few years ago, which is another indication that people are actually choosing to read books mm. um, in print form. There is print books as a technology. It's fantastic technology for serving up what it serves up. It's it's tested, isn't it? It's time tested. <laughs> it's mother approved. There's a similar correlation with, you know, in my business in that people were like, well, you know, when things go digital, mm-hmm. you won't be able to sell music. Everyone's going to pirate it. Right. And I was always a big advocate of when this started to shift, trends I was seeing was, well, no, we're just going to monetize that experience in different ways, mm-hmm. you know, with t-shirts or, or, <laughs> or other formats. And now I think there's this urgency with young people, with everyone that a live show of an independent artist, a yep. DIY artist who's yep. not being told what he or she should write about in a small venue is a very special experience. You know, it doesn't mean that you're not a legit musician. In fact, it means that you've figured out things in a different way. Yeah. And I think there's a connection there with maybe print media because it's the connection being that things have survived, right? Mm. Doing something for the sake of creating art is a similar corollary to people will always need certain things. They'll always need books and they'll always need that human experience of a show, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah, and if you think about the media, the, the presentation of the media, the first way that, that music ever was transmitted was in performance, live performance. Right, exactly, great. And yeah. the first way that, you know, that that words in print were transmitted is, well, you know, it, you know, it used to be on parchment, but, you know, on some flat portable surface is still the way that people um, seem to prefer. Yeah. And I think rumors of the demise of the print book are greatly exaggerated. And I think similarly, rumors of the demise of publishing industry are, are greatly exaggerated. People have been warning us about the sky falling in this business since, probably since Gutenberg, um, <laughs> or, you know, maybe right. like two years after Gutenberg. Um, I believe books should be perceived as the things that contain a certain amount of words, let's say 80,000, 90,000, 100,000. You know how like there's there's a natural length for a song, you know, sure. it's two to three minutes, yeah. a natural length for an album, it's like 40, 45 minutes, and you can go over that, you can go into that. There's something 
structurally that dictates those lengths. And it's very, very deeply rooted, I think. It's not accidental or just a function of habit. And I think, so for a collection of words that make a big statement and that hang together pretty well, say it's, you know, 90, 100, 100, 10,000 words, no matter what form that's in, it can even be an audio form. That form ain't going away. And it's kind of like your boy Richard Dawkins talks about with memetics and memes. Memes, yeah. And that's, yeah, that inspires me, those patterns and those things that we hope to pass on to the next generation. I want to talk about two more things. You grew up in the Bronx mm-hmm. when hip hop was being birthed. <laughs> so I did, yes. Like I've never met anyone who grew up in the Bronx during that period. It just struck me like this is a great first person topic, which I'm sure we could do a whole nother podcast on. So I grew up in, in, in again, an Irish neighborhood off the boat. I didn't know from Cool Herc. I didn't know from that scene at all. And I am roughly the age of where, you know, if I, if I did know about it, I would know about it. Do you know what I mean? Sure. But they were in the East Bronx. I was in the sort of the Northwest Bronx and never the twain would meet, you know? Uh, I mean, there was one Italian kid who lived in my block and he was ostracized. Um, uh, for being Italian? Yeah, I mean, Jesus. the nerve. Um, yeah. <laughs> you know, I probably discovered hip hop via the way every other, you know, white person of my age did, which is, um, you know, through something like, you know, crossover hit like Rapper's Delight. And then, you know, later on in the 80s and into the 90s, I sort of realized what had been going on sort of, you know, right next to me or half a bar away Mm. that I wasn't woke enough to realize at the time. Hip hop to me has always been like an insight into a world where like growing Mm -hmm. up, you know, I grew up in Oakland Mm -hmm. and discovering a lot of rappers later, learning about what that life was like. And that's like, like it was a window. So I guess my question is like, when did it feel like, you know, being in New York at that time that like, this is a movement and it's going to go global. When did you start to feel like, oh, this is a, this thing is happening? You know, again, I think I was late to that party. I think I was in college and I, you know, I had left New York for college and then I was sort of like, Hey, look what's going on down there. My own borough. Huh fascinating. And then, you know, my interest soon became more than academic because I discovered what you discovered, which is how incredibly expressive it is and eloquent it is about a kind of life that I knew nothing about. And yet in in the best hands, how sort of universal it was, how the beats just reached down in, into your sternum and just, you know, moved you in, in you know, physically in, in fresh ways, but that also they're you know, it's it's like we were talking about with the Iliad and Dickens before. It's like these man, these people are so different from me, and yet they're exactly the same. Right. You know, there's it was a route towards empathy that I wouldn't have found except through that form. And and that's kind of why I think why hip hop is so celebrated because it was a lot of the ways it was a precursor to how the internet does something similar or how you know, uh, totally connecting us all. Yeah, I, I think that's true, and I think also the idea that you could take. Uh, I mean. Far be it for me to tell you your job, but you you know well how kaleidoscopic the form is. But I've you know in this context I shouldn't be calling out some uh, uh, shouting out to some appropriators. But I don't I actually don't believe in the concept of cultural appropriation. I think culture is everybody's, especially the kind of performative um, um, and literary culture that we're talking about. Um, but I was going to name check Paul's boutique, mm. which is an incredible amalgam of all kinds of different stuff. Yeah. And um, that in formal terms, similar to um, what the internet is, to the kind of how hip hop kind of prepared us in some way for the peregrinations that we would have to become comfortable with when the culture became more um, subsumed within the internet. Yeah. And I know exactly what you're saying, because Paul's Boutique is is no is always so famous because it's this the litany of samples that they they never had to clear. And I was reaching here for, um, I have this 33 and a third on the public enemy nation of millions book. Oh, cool. I don't know this. And and it's like that album is, is like similarly. That's a great, yes, that's a great comp. Yeah. And and so I haven't read it, but I just got it. I'm excited to dig in because I am such a fan of, um, how these mash, these cultural mashups came to be. Yes. And me too. Yeah. And like it made us comfortable for where, where the world's going and making us comfortable to realize if you sit down and analyze something, you'll get something from it. Be, analyze being like, I'm always a fan of what, what is this lyric referencing? Like, 
Like, what's the cadence? What is it? What is it telling us? How is it different? Mm. I'm such a nerd when it comes to that scansion, no, you know. Yeah, but that's. I mean, that's the, the the deeper you look, the more gifts this it gives you. You know, there's like a uh, someone else. This this book looks great, but yeah, like, I, I, um, I'll let you borrow it after. Uh, thanks, man. Um, I might even you know spend some of my own hard earned um, <laughs> support it. Yeah, it, I mean, what you're saying is true in general, and 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 particularly of hip hop, it lends itself so well to mingling. Like, I, I really like girl talk. Yeah, yeah, stuff. me too, yeah. And he just, you know, like, I would never have thought of putting that beat together with, you know, that lyric. And it, to- it totally works. And it just sort of shows you how the commonality that underlies all this this apparent difference. And then that moves, I think, quickly from the sort of the, the technical nerdy aspects that we were just sort of alluding to, to, the again, the emotional qualities and the motivations that, that underpin um, so much different kind of, of music. And I think hip hop is unusual. I mean... I think of any musical form, hip hop might be the most translatable or or travelable. You know, if you think about all the great um, hip hop that's going on in the places that just seem like preposterous, you know, for for given that it came out of the East Bronx in the seventies, you know, um, you know, uh, uh, you know, Eastern Europe, the Middle East, uh, in Africa is, you know, is sort of obvious. And yet what they've done with hip hop and, in, 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 you know, a lot of the, I think the, the great young African rappers is, is, is itself, you know, it's not yeah. just derivative, it's right. its own thing. Right. Or I love, I mean, I love, um, I love uh, Latin music in general. I mean, Latin hip hop is just oh my god! It's just phenomenal. The best of it is just is just um, it, you know it's it rivals my favorite sort of you know uh, uh, American hip hop, and yet it's itself. Right, and and people like Cardi B heard her oh, her new yeah. hit that with with the Spanish verse. Like you hear that everywhere I hear. And well, you should. Yeah, because it's you're right. It's. I, I like that it's this, to me, I mean, you know, we could talk about this forever, but to <sighs> me, hip hop is truly quote unquote American in a way that makes it um, a universal concept where it's this mm. democratizing ideas and how things sound and energy. And like you said, the way it can spread in a way that is like very democratic, but in a way that is universal. And I don't want to be too patriotic, but you know what I'm saying? Kind of. I strongly agree with you. The only thing I, two words I would add to that are melting pot. There you go. Yeah. You know, the, the form makes it impossible not to mingle stuff. It's so, I mean, it's fascinating, especially like if you follow from sort of the mid late seventies through, you know, eighties into the nineties and, and beyond how much more inclusive it becomes, you know, like, like yeah. where those, my, my God, they, you know, they, where do they get those beats? And, you know, it's like Tuvan throat singing or something, you know? <laughs> right. Yeah. Especially. And then going back to like records like um, Paul's Boutique and De La Soul, oh. and where it was like, okay, well, you can sample James Brown. That's that's mm-hmm. awesome. But like, how crazy can you get with these samples? Yes. And that's like, that would became a whole, like, I think that era, like boasting of how yeah. deep you can go. And then with the nerd rap era, all that stuff was about how deep can you <laughs> reference things? And like, nothing is off limit intellectually. Not that it was ever, but that if you are smart and are passionate and you're able to put that narrative on what you're doing, mm-hmm. it's, it's in a way it has an aesthetic legitimacy. Well, hip hop has been incredibly referential, like willfully referential right from the start. So part yeah. of what, how you were boasting is like, I could slip, I could slip slide in this reference that just like, uh, is it Illumatic or is it Paul's Boutique where that one of the lines is, I got more hits than Sadahara O. And it's like, you got to know, he's like the Japanese baseball player who's got all the, you know, the, That's the, good, the, yeah. the home run record. Um, there's, um, <laughs> In that same, and you can go as highbrow or as lowbrow or as nobrow as you wanted. There's um, uh, there's a great Killer Mike line. I can't remember which line it's off, but uh, he says, uh, uh, he says, "I'll put a pause in your life, just like a comma, bitch." <laughs> and I'm like, "Oh man, <laughs> punctuation <good>. rap, <laughs> grammar rap." Did you ever read David Foster Wallace's um, "Signifying Rappers"? Do you know that book with Mark Costello? No, I've not read that. It's it, he did it as a um, so many gaps in my knowledge. I read it like. 
back in the day and I rediscovered it. And it's so good because, you know, he, I love David Foster Wallace, but, but I love how it's, it was like late eighties talking about how he was noticing all these things we're talking about. And it was a oh, thesis. Check this out. He did it. He, I think it was like a, th- a thesis he did when he was a, a grad student. Mm-hmm. That book really like inspired me. And I, lo- I can't stop talking about that book. But. Oh, cool. I'm going to have to check that out as well. I've got quite the homework <laughs> assignment from you, I, um, Lars. I appreciate it. You're going to leave with a stack of, stack yeah, of books. Hell yeah. Um, so Eamon, I wanted to end with this last, sure. this last thing. We talked about this when we talked about the potential of having you as a guest. Um, I know a lot of people who listen to the podcast are, you know, they're creators or they're people involved in storytelling. And, you know, as someone such as yourself who knows a lot about storytelling, who's read a lot, who's helped craft a lot of stories, what are some specifics or some elements to good storytelling or some things to keep in mind when constructing narrative? Um, I would say the first thing is to be conscious of the person you're creating for. Um, I think if you want to write or record or paint or shoot or do whatever art you're going to do to understand yourself better, that's great. You, you do it. Um, but if you're going to um, be doing it with the purpose of reaching out towards other people, you have to consciously be thinking about them and what they need and what they want and don't want at least as much about as you're thinking about what you want to get out of the experience. Um, And that goes back to what we were talking about before this notion that you of subtraction um, that you can't hold a mirror up to life um, and just show us life in all its chaos. You need to figure out what you can take away so that we actually understand the underlying truths better. That means you probably have to cut more than you think you do. You also want to think in a very similar context. I think you want to think clearly and closely and early about frames. And by frames in this context, I essentially mean your beginning and your ending. As an editor, I spend a disproportionate amount of my time working on the beginnings and the endings of books and sort of my authors. And those are the most challenging elements in the book, which is not to say that the rest of the stuff will just sort itself out later and you don't have to worry. That's hard too, but the beginnings and the endings are hardest. I think if you figure out um, on your own or with the help of an editor um, like me, if I'm lucky, um, where you want to start and where you want to end, then you've solved uh, a lot of your problems. Even if the start and the end are not the final um, start and end, um, to start with some sense of, of, of inception and conclusion um, helps you figure out how to fit everything else in. Another thing to keep in mind early and often is that you should consider every part of your story to be story. Everything is plot. So plot is plot, um, as you might guess, but character is plot as well. Setting is plot. When you meet a person in real life, you never know everything about them all at once. Um, When you go to a new place, you never learn anything about it all at once. You, as a a writer or a a performer or whatever else you might uh, be doing that entails telling a story, you want to think about how you're going to pay out that information to us. What are the first couple of things you're going to tell us? What might be the first things we'd notice? Then what would be the second couple of things? Then what would be the surprising things that you would only pick up once you've spent a fair amount of time with this character or in this place or with this storyline? That notion that everything has a progression to it, that you can't introduce us to everything about something all at once is really important and something that is not as natural as it sounds because people, um, writers and other storytellers, um, have a natural inclination to bring a reader or a, 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 a viewer or whatever up to speed right away. I want to, you know, tell you everything about this person so that you'll understand why he's, what he's doing in this scene. (laughs) No, you can't do that. Hmm. Because again, that's not how life shakes out. Now, I will say that how real life is, is clearly not a criterion that I use in general when determining what a good story is. All stories are in in some 
elemental way fiction for the reasons we talked about before. You're always subtracting something. You're always taking away. You can't show us everything. But they're the fiction that shows us a truth that we might not otherwise see. However, in this one respect, I think it's vital that you give us a gradualness in the way you plot every aspect of your story that somewhat mirrors the gradualness with which we come to understand things in life generally. So I remember hearing, you know, the expression show don't tell, which does you think that relates to that in a way? Um, I'm glad you brought that up. The reason I came here today without even realizing it was to debunk the whole show don't tell thing. In short form, at article length, um, it can be a very useful mantra to show don't tell. Um, But in long form, when when at book length, when you're um, think about how incredibly complex in psychological and neurological terms it is to read a book, to keep everything straight in your mind, to remember the thing that happened in chapter one when you're in chapter 18. I mean, that's, 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 it's, it's much harder to write a book than it is to read a book, um, but it's pretty darn hard to read a book. It's one of the most complicated sort of leisure time activities that one can take up. And when you're writing at book length, you have to be very conscious of how the reader might get lost or drop the thread, miss the significance. Um, Partially, as I said before, that's a function of how a writer's expertise can actually get in their way because they don't know what we don't know and what we need to have explained to us. But beyond that, you lose nothing by signposting. You lose nothing by telling us how chapter four relates to chapter three and how chapter five Mm. relates to what we just learned in chapter four. Again, err on the side of the obvious. What's that great Reddit thing you said before? LE5? LE5, yeah. Yeah, so like LE8, you know. There's a term in in marksmanship, and I think in life in general, there's a a rubric or a mantra, you know, aim high to hit the mark. Mm. Um, To a certain degree, you want to aim low to hit the mark. If you, you never want to condescend to your audience by any means. This is just an exercise to get you down to our level. Not that we're stupider than you, but we don't know the tendons and the ligaments that connect the bone and muscle of your, whatever, your story, your argument. So you have to show us the connective tissue. And that that form of showing is telling. Mm. The significance of X is Y. We may think that X is Z, but in fact, it's more Y. Um, you, but you have to be that declarative about it, that obvious about it. And as an editor, it's easier for me to cut than it is to add. If you happen to be too obvious in a particular instance, I'll just say, hey, you know, I'll put a bubble in the margin. I'll say, yeah, we don't need this. Mm. More often, though, remember, as I said at the outset, the word I write most often in in those bubbles is vague. And um, erring on the side of the obvious saves, um, saves you from the sin of vagueness. Because then you can always, like we talked about, if you write more than you need, pair back what you don't need as yeah, much, right? Exactly. When I'm writing a, a rhyme mm-hmm. or writing lyrics, I try to convey the emotion, tell the story. And I also try to like, if my flow's more, I try to make my flow more complicated because mm. it's it's easier to make it simple than it is to try to add extraneous like cadences, mm-hmm, you know? Mm-hmm. So it's similar, but different, but yeah. Um. So Eamon, where... Where do you, like people who are curious about your life and your art and your work and everything, what, what are some good social media places they can follow you? Well, the, um, the two that I would say are probably good to start and two of the, the only three that I really use, um, are Twitter and Instagram. And my handle in both of those is, um, uh, at, and just my name, all lowercase at E A M O N D O L A N. And um, come visit. Yes. And, and Eamon is like, you know, he's very, you're pretty prolific on, on the formats. <laughs> One last question. Do you ever listen to music when you edit or what kind of music do you listen to when you edit? I always listen to music when I edit. I know a lot of my colleagues can't do that. And I have certain um, limitations. Uh, generally, I can't listen to music in a language um, that I understand. I speak Spanish and my English is pretty good. So that uh, usually leaves them out. But the one exception to that rule, for some reason, is um, I bump ACDC a lot, uh, especially back in black. I don't know why. <laughs> Judge me. Go ahead. But there it is. Um, we talked about um, the Beastie Boys a little bit before. And um, as you know, um, there is a 
I also love covers um, in in general. Um, I just think that that's uh, underappreciated um, as sort of a form unto itself. And the Beastie Boys cover of ACDC, having said all that, seems like a great cut to go out on. Uh, well, congrats on on everything, and like it's really special. Thanks, thank Back you, at you. Thank, thanks, man. Thanks for all the time you you gave us today. Oh, this was a blast. So okay, so. Eamon Dolan, uh, we will, I'll keep you updated. I'll keep retweeting his, his stuff. <laughs> and uh, Thank you. this is some editing music curated by Eamon Dolan. Great interview. Thank you, Eamon. It was an honor having you on the show. Next week, we have my friend Big O, who is a rapper, uh, producer, performer from Boise, Idaho, who I've toured with a lot and uh, who I recently just played a show with on the Nerdcore tour. He opened for us in Boise. But he's a great guy and a DIY hardworking guy. And some of you may not know his music, but I've collaborated on a few tracks with him. And I wanted to talk to him about like his perspective as a younger musician finding his way in the world. So check it out. Next week is Big O. I'm MC Lars. Have a great week. Thank you for coming to see us on this tour. If we're playing near you, nerdcoretour.com and uh, patreon.com slash MC Lars for all of that Narnian flavor. Peace, y'all. Thanks for listening.